0: Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show about television and movies, from the ones on the big screen to whatever it is you might be streaming. My name's Lisa Kovacevic and joining me on tonight's show is writer and film critic Will Cox. Will, I think this is the first time... We've done the show together, IRL together. Is yes, that true? Yes,
1: we've done it in computer land. Yeah. But we've never actually, yes, it's met. It's confusing. Actually, we've never met.
0: No. <laughs> it's so nice to see you. Yeah. <laughs> and your flesh. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and a little later on the show, actually, we'll be joined by another Primal Scream alumni in Stuart Richards uh, when we discuss Steven Soderbergh's latest contribution to film set against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic in the HBO Max film, Kimmy which is currently streaming here in Australia and on Binge and Foxtel. Uh, and then later on, we'll also look at the convoluted nature of making films in Mia Hansen, løves Bergman Island. Uh, but we begin closer to home with an interview with the director of the very candid local documentary about singer-songwriter Courtney Barnett. Here's a clip.
2: I had a submission on my website with a, a comment box asking people to tell me how you really feel. It's been really humbling and... Really beautiful reading uh, what people are willing to share and to to be open about. I'm going to read you some. There's like literally thousands of them. Feeling lonely, but I don't know why. Feeling exhausted, but don't want to show it. A little guilty, but generous. Giddy with falling in love, happy but stressed, brave and terrified. There's a really overwhelming number of, uh, I feel tired, I feel hopeless, I feel alone. A lot of people feel alone, maybe
0: they're not so alone. That was a scene from the new music documentary about singer-songwriter Courtney Barnett titled Anonymous Club. Melbourne-based director and photographer Danny Cohen joins us live on the, on the line tonight to discuss the feature film, his feature, feature film debut, I should say. Danny, thanks so much for joining us on Primal Screen.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan.
0: Hey, can you talk us through the filming process firstly because I understand it was quite unique. That clip that we just heard there, I believe, Courtney recorded on a dictaphone, is that right?
3: Yeah, so, um, you know, Courtney uh, is notoriously shy and so we came up with this idea of giving her a dictaphone to be able to record all her thoughts, um, you know, in her own time and space uh, so that she didn't feel the pressure of me and the camera on her and so she would record anything. I'd, I just said, you know, directed at me, say, Hey Danny, and just start. And it could be anything from like, Hey Danny, I need a haircut or, um, <laughs> you know, I had pasta for dinner or it could delve a little deeper and, um, she could, you know, get lost in, in, in searching.
0: And so she would then deliver these tapes to you. How does that work?
3: Uh, yeah. So it was like a digital dictaphone and then uh, every few months I'd back it up. Um, and have no idea what was on it and then it would kind of um, you know it'd always be out of sync with my filming because uh, of a day that I thought everything seemed okay, I'd then hear two months later that maybe it wasn't okay. Right.
1: So how many hours yeah. of material did you work from to, of the audio recording? Uh,
3: uh, between thirty and thirty five hours.
1: Yeah. Okay.
3: She did great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's quite epic. Gave me a so lot. It's yeah.
1: quite intimate though as well, isn't it? You have a relationship already. You were you were friends.
3: Yeah, so we've been um, working on a bunch of music videos and photos for a few years and, uh, I mean, we are creative collaborators and, and, and good friends, but I think we definitely got a lot closer um, naturally throughout the sort of filming process.
0: And what is it about, I, was, I mean, I know that you've got this hist- history of a relationship with Courtney, but why make this documentary feature? Why now? Why Courtney Barnett?
3: Uh, it just felt like, you know, in our, in our friendship at in collaboration it felt like the next uh, natural sort of step Um, and I was interested in the idea because uh, Courtney and I mainly were bonding over um, and still do the creative pursuit. Um, We both are really inspired by hearing other artists sort of um, the way they've got through things and use their art to pave the way for others and whatnot and so we kind of thought well, we'll just see what happens and and, and take it from there as a kind of a, a springboard for the documentary. Um, you you yeah. guys,
0: I mean, you, you followed her. Was it over the three years that you were actually travelling with her, or was it just the one year that you guys worked, you know, in terms of filming? Oh,
3: yeah, no, it was three years. Yeah, um, on and off tour. Um, yeah, and, and you <laughs> see, around the world, yeah, many times.
0: That's what I, I quite enjoyed, like seeing the reception that she gets in places like Japan or Europe or the US. What is it? about this sort of very local Australian-sounding artist that is so universally appealing, do you think, from your perspective?
3: I think um, she writes and sings about, um, you know, things that can connect and uh, feel universal, whether that's, you know, anxieties or self-doubt or uh, it, she sings about everyday things. And I think people can really find comfort and in, in listen to someone um, perform those.
0: And you're an accomplished photographer and an award-winning music video director. Um, this is your first feature film. Do you see music documentary as a genre that you will continue to want to explore?
3: Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm I'm open to ideas. There's been a few uh, new ideas kicking around. I, I didn't expect to be making a, a music documentary however many years ago. Uh, it just kind of came along and I thought I'd give it a red-hot go. And, <laughs> and here we are.
0: I'm, I'm just curious about what it is for you that music offers that you want to commit it to film, whether it's a film clip or a, or a documentary?
3: Uh, I, I haven't really thought too much about that. It's There's something interesting about, um, you know, capturing a time and place, and um, I think that's the same with music videos, even though they can be quite conceptual and, you know, silly and, and whatnot, but it kind of still does document where a band or an artist is at that particular time. Um, and I think that sort of echoed throughout the documentary as well.
0: You, um, you shoot on sixteen millimeter in this film, um, and I actually, Will and I were both curious about it. We we're talking about it off off mic before as to why you would give yourself the, those restrictions, because um, you know there's a cost involved with sixteen millimeter, and um, there's you know a much there's much more ease and flexibility with digital now. So why choose for the six? Why go for the sixteen mil?
3: Uh, I mean, I I think that as a medium, it's just so immersive and and the colours and and tonally it it replicates life, I think, um, more intimately, um, more immersive than digital does. I find digital just a little bit artificial or um, scientific perhaps. I don't think it's necessarily a debate between the two, um, but there was a lot of happy accidents on on deciding to shoot on film. Like, um, you know, you each roll has 10 to 11 minutes um, and obviously it's quite expensive. So you, you have to sort of get better at um, deciding when to roll and what to roll on. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I feel like with digital, you'd just, if I could, I'd just roll four or five hours a day on, mm-hmm. on, on anything because I'm just there and it, it's kind of, you just use the medium as much as you'd like. Um, it, and I think by enforcing those, those things on myself, um, yeah, I think, you get better footage perhaps
1: do you think that that was yeah I as I was, there you go you've already answered the question I was about to ask do you think that that opened <laughs> things up and 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 um, that limitation made things
3: uh, got you better results yeah I think so I, I didn't expect it um, but you just really have to think about what you you're filming and what you want to film like mm-hmm. a lot of times it'd be like you know big hype about um, a huge show that's in front of like five or 10,000 people, whatnot. And and everyone's like, you've got to be there. And this is the show and it's the show. And then you film it and you look at the footage and like, well, yeah, it's a big show and everyone's having a good time. Courtney's, you know, performing terrifically and but there's not much more story to that. So I think it kind of pushes you to try and find those more intimate moments and and find something, you know, there's in in between moments.
0: There's something to be said about Um, restrictions for an artist isn't there so when you have sort of parameters it can make you more efficient in your filmmaking I often think of um, David Lynch's Inland Empire which was sort of at the time when digital first came out and it was just this like epic hours of footage because he was having fun experimenting but you lose you, you run the risk of losing the audience I suppose don't you
3: yeah, if there's too much, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't know even how to edit all that. Like if you had five I, hours a day of he three years, he didn't know how to literature. edit that either.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. <That's too
3: good. laughs> a comment on that.
1: But how? I mean, how much did you footage did you come away with? you uh, shooting on 16 mil. Uh,
3: it was roughly 160 rolls, which um, I think is around 26 hours. So it's not it's not a lot, and no. um, maybe. 10 to 15 hours of that was live footage. Like when I first went on tour, I was just shooting so much um, live stuff because obviously that's where the most drama was that I could see. And, um, you know, Courtney's just such a a, a fantastic performer. It's kind of like shooting Fish in a barrel. You just want to shoot it all the time. And then after a while, I was like, oh, this isn't anything. This is just documenting how what a great performer she is. And obviously the crowds that come along with it, but there wasn't enough of a the story there to be able to craft a film and then, from.
1: And then you get that sort of behind the scenes, that other side of her, which is quite a contrast. Uh, to yeah, her, definitely. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: There's a lot of, um, I mean, the themes of depression and fear and self doubt and anxiety loom really large in this very intimate portrait of this sensitive soul. And as we said before, you know, you and Courtney have collaborated before, but I was wondering then, I don't know, I felt for you as a filmmaker watching this, was it difficult to sort of maintain your distance as a filmmaker or, you know, did you find yourself becoming a part of the story in any way?
3: Uh, I think it was really difficult. Um, One, because it was always out of sync. So I'd hear about how she was feeling a few months after the fact. Um, and then also it, it was really difficult because when you do hear about it, um, you're like, do I, should I ask Courtney about that? Or, you know, do, like, uh, is she okay? And because I didn't pick it up when I was filming, I, she's quite, she was quite good at sort of hiding it. So then I, I think there was one time that I was like, oh, hey, I, you know, I just got the dictaphone back and listened to that one. And I, are you okay? Is everything you know, and, and she's like, oh, that, no, nah, that, you know, that was like that one night I'm fine now. And then you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's just like bringing it back up for her or something. Yes, so yeah. um, it was quite tricky. And, and then after a while you become so close that you, you're, I found it difficult because I was trying to find more and more story and drama within a friend's life.
1: Mm, yeah. You hear a lot about uh, documentary filmmakers and their subjects and the kind of exploitation of it, you know, um, that, that your, your job at the end of the day is to tell a story but it's you can't really do that when she's your friend can you you can't just pull out material yeah i mean
3: yeah it's 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 it became yeah difficult um, cuz you just kind of hang out and you're like okay well it's it's time to film you know but none:
0: on. Yeah, so. let's get to work. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> we've been speaking with Danny Cohen about his music documentary about singer-songwriter Courtney Barnett. It's called Anonymous Club. Um, Danny, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Primal Screen tonight. We really appreciate it.
3: Thanks so much for having me. Thank
0: you. Anonymous Club starts in cinemas this Thursday. Um, there's also a special preview screening and Q&A event tomorrow night at Palace Pentridge in Coburg. Um, Danny and Courtney will both be there for the Q&A. If you'd like to head along, just jump online and book yourself a ticket.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
0: You're listening to Primal Screen and joining myself and Will on the line all the way from Adelaide is lecturer in screen studies at the University of South Australia, Mr. Stuart Richards. Hello, Stuart.
4: Thank you for having me. Good uh, to be
0: back. Have you put on a handsome filter tonight or something? Because you're looking very dashing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, a face for, it's a face for radio. We all have faces for radio here, uh, Stuart. <laughs> um, Stewie's here to help us unpack a film that may or may not be about Ingmar Bergman. It is Bergman Island. I think I'll be setting up here. We can wave at each other. Don't you think it's too nice to to what beautiful all this calm and perfection i find it oppressive
3: ah soothing
0: yeah but i didn't realize you know writing here how can i not feel like a loser i'm even afraid to sit at a desk
3: well, right outside then a lot of people come here to work students writers designers no one's expecting a persona
0: yeah well thank god for that That was a scene from Bergman Island where filmmaking couple Chris, played by Vicky Creeps, who you might remember from Phantom Thread, and Tony, played by Tim Roth, retreat to the breathtaking and mythical Faro Island in Sweden for the summer. A place where the legendary director Ingmar Bergman lived, loved and shot some of his most celebrated films, including one that allegedly made millions of people divorce, scenes from a marriage. While hoping to find creative inspiration but spending most of their days apart, memories of Chris's first love are evoked, ultimately making her question her current relationship with Tony. Tony is a successful, seemingly commercial filmmaker, while Chris has a much more organic approach to her craft. After suffering a bout of writer's block, her film begins to emerge quite literally as we, the viewer, watch it manifest on the screen. It is a story of longing and desire in a younger couple, Amy, also a filmmaker, played by Australia's Mia Wozikowska, and her on-again, off-again lover, Joseph, played by Anderson Danielson, sorry, Anderson Danielson Lee, is that right? That sounds like a... (laughs) <laughs> Quite a fun. That
1: sounds like a mistake. It
0: sounds like a mistake. I don't know what his parents were thinking, <laughs> and the lines between reality and fiction progressively begin to blur. Bergman Island is French writer-director Mia Hansen-Løve's latest exploration into the complexity of creative minds with all their emotional, moral, and existential dilemmas. Her c- cinematic prose can feel misleadingly simple at times, but once you allow yourself to be swept away in her calm sensuality and gentle tempo, the intricacy of her worlds revealed deeper ideas and uncomfortable truths. The film sits nicely alongside her earlier works, including Eden, a nostalgic ode to the fading cultural prominence of the French touch generation, excuse me, and the and the, sorry, and the the feminist things to come about a recently divorced female professor based on her parents' separation. Stuart, are you an Ingmar Bergman fan? I kind of got the sense that you might be. I'm not.
4: Oh, you're not? <laughs> I, no, I actually haven't seen... I've seen um, the, uh, the name's escaping me now, The his Christmas film um, uh, of the two kids. Um, but I've seen that one. Home um, Alone But I haven't <laughs> seen scenes from a marriage. <laughs> Home Alone 2. That's that yes. rises yeah.
1: comedy. Fanny and Alexander. <laughs> yeah.
0: Fanny believe. and Alexander, <laughs>
4: yes. Yeah. I've seen Fanny and Alexander and I haven't seen scenes from a marriage and the entire time watching this, I was really enjoying it, but I know that if I knew more about Ingmar Bergman and how so much of his films are, I guess, imbued in this space, on mm. this island, mm. then I would be appreciating it a lot more.
0: Um, I yeah, was, I, it, yeah. It, yeah. I was, I don't know, the setting on the, is, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, is it Faro? 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 Someone knows or, how to say order. it. In the Forda. It's I, Forda, 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 Forda Island. I, I beg your pardon, everyone. I couldn't get it right. Um, but it's it's an interesting one. It's a, as Stewie says. It's where Bergman shot most of his films. But um, in those films. The, the environment in the space is quite dark and sinister at times, whereas this has such a lightness to it, such a whimsy. It's like she's gone there. The filmmaker has gone there and gone. Hang on a minute, this is a beautiful place. It you is know? very.
1: A lot of the film is very light, though. Isn't the first it? half feels like a, just a terrific holiday. You know, yeah. That's, that's quite odd. But what you were saying about it, it feeling like you need more Bergman context to. To fully sort of get on board with it i, I don 't know about that. I think maybe if they, even if they made up a filmmaker or writer you know and they said we 're in his territory, I, I think it 's about feeling out a space you know a creative space around a story or a person. But um...
0: I'd agree with that, Will, because I, I mean, it, it's something it could be any one of those male auteurs of that time, isn't mm. it? Because it's a place within the film and in reality where, where people sort of take these pilgrimages is to, you know, seek out what drove their favourite artiste mm-hmm. at the time. And and I think the filmmaker um, Hanson Louvre makes some kind of funny little digs at people like that too throughout Mm. the film, which I quite enjoyed. Um, Yeah, so I'm the same as you. And I haven't got a lot of – I mean, I saw Persona at film school, (laughs) but I don't really remember much of Bergman, you know. Um, My mother was a big fan, but I never really got into his films. Um, And so I'm like you, Will, I I don't feel like I need that context to enjoy – um, this film, I think the film is just deceptively simple, though. I felt like yeah. it, 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 it seems like a simple um, melodrama, uh, but it's so layered. What did you guys think?
1: Well, I... Well, I really love... You guys. <laughs> oh, it's the delay. It's the, it's the delay. It's the internet delay yeah. really things. I am always sceptical about films that are about people making films or films about people that are writing. A writer writing a character who's a writer watching you know watching films you think that about 30% of all jobs involve writing or making films behind probably only police officers you know but it, like it's such a fascinating and important job and she says it's agony it's blood from a stone like chill out you're very very lucky to be <laughs> to be doing this <laughs> but um you know that's not a consistent position of mine cuz i love the theater plot and drive my car um but the writing here, like the, the depiction of writing is very true to life, I think, sort of feeling around, like I said, that emotional landscape of a story and and the confined space of the island fits that really beautifully, but maybe it's a bit too neat. Uh,
0: yeah, I think um, that thing about crea- the creator and creativity, though, I think the filmmaker or, you know, it might just be because I'm female, but that for me, the perspective um, of the female filmmaker is a really interesting one that she's she seems to be addressing, particularly uh, under the shadow of Bergman, this sort of, you know, one of the cinema's greats, you know, um, at the start of the film. And Chris is sort of tr- trying to... F- Find her voice and her mm-hmm. partner. She's is under
1: the shadow of her partner her too. Her partner
0: who's su- yeah, commercially successful.
1: Who's, who goes. There's a there's a, a, a screening of one of his works and everybody applauds him. There's and a q And cues after and tells him how wonderful he is. And she's just off the side. She's expected to just sort of wait there while that's happening and that's then right. go and back and write her film. You know?
0: And she questions throughout the film um, the, the space that a female is allowed or. Has the ability to occupy as a creator. She asks at dinner one night, um, you know, how did he, how was he so prolific? Um, And somebody says, well, Bergman had nine children to six wives and, uh, you know, um, I think ran a theatre and put on so many plays by the age of 42. And she sort of says, do you think, um, you know, you can create a great body of work and raise a family at the same time? and someone says, well, no, you can't change diapers mm. and, and create, you know, these masterpieces. And, um, and Chris sort of says, why not? <laughs> like she says, I would have liked to have, you know, nine children to nine different men and create all this art. Um, but she's, she's in, ha- like her position is, in ha- is inhibited, sorry.
1: But it always mean. stays with her emotionally. I mean, what do you think about Vicky Creeps in this, Stewie?
0: Oh, she's stunning. And
4: I think she's clearly, well, I read her as being this anchor for Hansen Louvre herself um, to, I guess, see herself in this writing and creating process. Because um, I was reading up a bit about her um, preparing for this and she used to date uh, Olivier Assayas, who directed um, Personal Shopper and Clouds of Sils Maria and apparently it was a fairly rocky relationship. Um, so I can almost see some of that in this relationship between the two of them where he's more concerned about um, his own personal craft than really supporting her creative process. Um, And I think, I I guess the way I I read this film is that um, so many people around her are able to kind of separate Ingmar Bergman being, I guess, a very selfish person in real life perhaps and creating this beautiful art where for her she can't separate it. And she's so heavily... Um, channeling herself and her own view on the world into these characters, where I think wonderfully towards the end of the film, when you know reality and fiction start to blur, I think we can really see how much these characters are extensions of her of of the central Chris character, mm. um, which I really really loved.
1: And she's channeling um, she's channeling herself into these into stories because she can't channel herself into a relationship. Really? Yes. Do you perhaps. think? I mean, it's about parallel, yeah. uh, parallel uh, imaginations that don't cross, that don't meet at any point. You mm. know? I mean, he's, he's got his, and she's got hers, and they just they just will not they will not meet.
4: Apparently, um, Tim Roth uh, was um, was cast in the film very late, like during production, because Owen Wilson dropped out at the very last minute. Wow. Weird. I know. So Owen Wilson was meant to be in the Tim Roth role. And I keep on trying to picture this film with Owen Wilson against, you know, playing against Vicky Creeps. And you can almost see just how different these two characters are with those two types of performances next to each other because she's so enigmatic um, in this film. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think it's I think it's a beautiful film, and I think you are right where, like, it's deceptively simple. Where there's this very soft Celtic harp soundtrack.
0: I love throughout. that, and it's
4: <laughs> it's so good. It's very weird for like a, a Swedish island, but um, and we get. I mean, it's clearly filmed during summer, so there's that midsummer vibe of it, always daylight. Yes, that's and, right. Yeah, and it lulls you into this just this peaceful film on an island, and then. Towards the end, you start realizing just how much is going on in this story, um, and I think the approach to characterisation through that I think is fascinating. I,
1: I think that is where halfway through is where it really picks up for me. Like, and it starts; it, it makes the first half feel like a framing device that she's got a bit carried away with. You know, mm. uh, I I just think we could have lost that and had more of the, the fictional uh, story that, uh, that, that that Chris is working on.
0: I enjoyed the way, I felt like it became more and more dense as the film progressed, but it was never difficult to follow. You never got mm. lost <laughs> in it, which was good. Um, but I, I feel like that whimsical quality really belies its depth. I think it mm. has a lot to say about the ways that we revere the artist, um, a woman's position in, in the filmic world um, and struggle. Um, I, I, I think I just gained, I, I don't know, I found it was a rich viewing for me. And the element of sexual desire actually was really interesting too. It was used in a really strategic way. I felt, um, particularly in the Mia Wasikowska storyline that's played out, it's sort of like an inversion of a Bergman film, <laughs> like the power dynamics, you know, of the the male director and the female lead and that sensual charge between actor and director that drove so many of his films and films of that era too. I feel like um, Hanson Louver is inverting that dynamic in a lot of ways. It's quite meta too because she's making this film. She herself wrote it on Faroe Island and then she's got these characters writing their version of it and then there's another version existing it does become a bit, um, you know, there's a, there's a sense of vertigo to this film, um, but I actually really enjoy that, wheel, that blurring of like reality and fiction that, The in meta
1: side of it, I like, I like that to an extent, but the meta side of it started to wind me up. I just think it's a very <laughs> obvious thing to do. I don't know. I yeah. don't know. But, but uh, I, th- I thought the constructed nature of the, that story that's been, that she been, that, 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 that film that, that Chris is trying to write, it leaves it feeling a little undercooked. You know, because then there's the the conceit. Oh, I don't know what happens next, so like we won't. <laughs> if, like if there's any flaws in the story, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, that's because it's a story I haven't finished writing yet. You know, which is like coming back to how I what I was saying near the beginning of our chat about this. Uh, it's a it's a maybe a writer who's a bit in too much in love with the process of writing. Yes. And the romanticism of that.
0: It's very you know. romantic. That's mm. true. I, I think, like yeah. for me, if I if I had one criticism, it might be that it does lack um, maybe a, a certain darkness to the film. Like it is very, sl- although, although it touches on lots of subjects, it's very laid in that way. It sort of, um, it lacks a heaviness that maybe I, I desire in a film like this, but maybe it doesn't need it. I don't know. What did you think, Stuart?
4: I think for that darkness is there though. So, I mean, this central couple um, are clearly, you know, on the rocks. Like it's not a great relationship. I mean, she's trying to get advice from him about how to finish this story, and he could not be bothered. Mm. Like, he answers the phone halfway through, and, you know, she's, and like, she leaves his QA to go traipsing about the island with someone else. Um, and the story she's writing is about, you know, these two young people having an affair, um, basically. So the material is there and it's dark, but it's, a, a, part of it being very subtle where it's juxtaposed against, you know, this very brightly lit island to, you know, Celtic music and aberrant, you know. And I think that open ending, I think, is also very deliberate because the Vicky Creeps character is, you know, it's all about how do I finish this writing and how do I kind of see these emotions out? And we don't get that, I don't Mm. think. Um, towards the end of the film, no, and that's, because
1: the, no I, mean, that's, I mean that's fair. I think that's real. You know, you don't get to see those emotions out a lot of the time. You don't get to no, work out. Yeah, you
0: know, no. And cinema yeah. is one space where we can explore these things. Mm. something that I also really enjoyed about the, this this film is that we can explore those forbidden desires on on the you know in the medium itself.
2: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform
0: you're listening to Primal Screen with myself, Lisa Kovacevic, Wilcox and Stewie Richards, who's zooming in from Radelaide. Uh, well, Stephen Soderbergh's latest film, Kimmy, is currently streaming here in Australia. Uh, it's written and produced by David kep whose credits include other claustrophobic thrillers such as Panic Room. Kimmy stars Zoe Kravitz as Angela Childs, who works from home monitoring incoming data streams from Kimmy devices and making corrections to the software. The Kimmy device in question is a stand-in for Siri or Google Home or Alexa or any built in voice controlled personal assistant. Angela suffers from anxiety and agoraphobia due to a previous assault, which has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic and subsequent lockdowns. Her primary human contact is with her romantic partner, Terry, her neighbour from across the street, whom she meets for sex in her apartment. One day while working, Angela receives a recording that appears to capture a violent sexual assault, but the audio is distorted and drowned out by loud techno music also picked up in the recording. A savvy tech operator, Angela attempts to isolate and amplify the audio, reminiscent of Brian De Palma's 81 film Blowout, which in itself was a homage to Antonioni's Blow Up. Um, But her superiors are not at all receptive to her concerns. Here's a clip of Angela reaching out to one of her bosses. Why would you
4: send me that stream? I have told everybody not to send me things like that. And especially a week before the IPO.
2: I thought it might've been a crime. Delete it. Did you hear me? I thought it might've been a crime.
4: Yeah, the devices pick up things, lots of things, and our policy is it's
2: not our business. Aren't we legally obligated because of the Amazon Arkansas thing?
4: Do you know how long that court case was? That was two years, and that was a murder. Trust me, Angela, we do not want our own Arkansas.
0: I think this might've been sexual assault.
4: Don't know. Don't say that. You don't know that. It was an argument.
2: I have a very strong feeling. Based on what? Based on my very strong feeling.
3: Okay, just skip
2: this one. Set
0: within the confines of Angela's apartment, which offers invasive views into her neighbours' apartments, Kimmy brings to mind many classic and some not-so-classic films of the claustrophobic voyeur thriller genre, most notably Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window with its isolated and incapacitated protagonist. But themes of voyeurism take on much more convoluted paths here, with interactive technology in our homes, the question... I'm uh, sorry, Now, our homes, question of who is watching. Sorry, we question who is watching and who is being watched. It becomes more murky. The film astutely questions the pervasiveness and invasiveness of modern technology, but it's never dogmatic in its approach. The film is a sleek and efficient thriller that stylistically and thematically draws from a cinematic canon that predates the technology in question, but it is, that is firmly set within the present. Will, this was your pick for the week. Are you a Soderbergh fan?
1: Um, I I like Soderbergh, but I don't... I mean, I just looked up his filmography uh, after this and realised that I haven't seen the last five or ten because he makes about two a year at the moment. He's
0: very prolific. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I the thing that maybe want to pick this is because I loved Unsane about five years ago, a Soderbergh film. Similarly paranoid thriller about a woman um, committed against her will to a, to a, um, to a mental health facility um, based on uh, some very true uh stories, I believe. Um, which was entirely shot on an iPhone and it was just so claustrophobic and great. And this uh, feels similar. Um you know, but but Soderbergh has made uh what Magic Mike? Oceans yeah. Eleven. It's just, you know, it's a it's a ridiculous list. You can't you it's can't plot something then. in the middle, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, of that. But uh, no, I, I, yeah, I would say I'm a Soderbergh fan, actually.
0: <laughs> and how did you think that this one sort of sits within the director's oeuvre?
1: This is my favourite of his type of types of types of films. It just seems like he's he's uh, got a very focused story, a very tight setting, tight cast, and just just go with it. You know, just just run with it and make something. Tight. really kind of gorilla almost in the way that it's, it's so quick and so... Tight um, is a
0: good word for it because mm. even the running time it's so efficient. It's mm. really efficient filmmaking. There's no fat here, and the, but it still moves at a, a solid pace, doesn't mm-hmm, it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you think, Stewie?
0: I thought it was a little
4: undercooked um, and I thought it was quite tonally inconsistent. Um, I think his film Unsane um, starring Claire Foy is incredible. Um, and I think maybe that's my favourite of his. Yeah.
1: Um,
4: and I love how he works across so many different genres. But there's still that, I think, like grittiness to characterisation, which is interesting. Um, it reminded me, um, as well as uh, Rewindow, it reminded me of the recent Netflix film Woman in the Window. um too, Starring Steve. Amy Adams. Yes. Which... I, I enjoyed that more because that just leant into the ridiculousness
3: it of did. it all. I, <laughs> this I did, thought, to an
1: extent, uh, I think, lean into the ridiculousness. I mean, it's like, there's obviously Hitchcock is a huge um, point of comparison here because of the the way that this sort of thrillery sort of plot unfolds, but also the playfulness, the sense that this is a this is a scary situation, but it's also kind of goofy. You know, uh, I mean.
4: Towards the end, there is that. I mean, it's almost gets into a bit of Home Alone territory when she's crawling through the roof. And, and
1: did you see who her her neighbour across the street is? Yes, Devon. Who says his name
4: is? Yeah, who says his name is Kevin?
1: So, <laughs> Devin Rattray, who is the the big brother in 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 the Home Alone films? Oh, I brought right. up the Home Alone films again. You have. I discussed them a lot yeah, on this show. We've just got to do a
0: Home Alone theme show. One of these days, we've already you, done Will. it. <laughs> I missed it. <laughs> Well, you've got to stop now. I know. Okay, I'm sorry.
1: I'm sorry. He does lean into the absurdity of it, you know, which I appreciated. But there were some, like, contrivances in the plot that I just think maybe if it stuck to its guns and was, a you know, a little simpler and more realistic, I think it would have been a bit more effective. But, you know, I, I don't know. What was he trying to do? Was he trying to make something slightly absurd and heightened? Because it, it's success. It is that.
0: I, I, I liked, um I like the sort of direct... Rear Window references because it got me thinking about – uh, I mean, I, for me, like often these sort of films uh, built around technology can be—they um, can seem dated, actually—and they can sort of lead, they can sort of end up in sci-fi territory. Whereas I felt this one just remained firmly in the present, and is probably one of the more successful films that has been set against the backdrop of the COVID nineteen pandemic. You know, mm. um, so I, I, I thought he—he he pulls that off because he doesn't make it—he do, he doesn't dumb down the audience and, and tell you, "Well, this is happening on this date now." There's a lockdown. None of that is meant. We just see the occasional mask. We see some people uncomfortable. She clearly has agoraphobia, which is probably a consequence of the pandemic. But it's, it's just expected that the audience knows that. And I like it when a filmmaker um, doesn't dumb down their audience. So I appreciated that.
1: You see her putting on a mask somewhere near the beginning and you go, okay, we're in the real world. Yeah. This is, yeah. yeah. Totally. And then everything happening, everything's happening on Zoom, Online, on Zoom, on, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah On and text, it's, it's yeah. It's a great... Um,
0: it's a, it's a world that we all are yeah. inhabiting now. We're speaking to our colleague right now on, on through a camera, you know. <laughs> so it's um it's a world that's become uh, alarmingly familiar. Uh, and I like the way, I think he pulls it off. I think a lot of films do not. But I also love the way that he's drawing on these really classic films like Rear Window. And it's making you think about, because I mean, in that film you have Jimmy Stewart is incapacitated because his physical body cannot move. He's mm. got a broken leg. So he's stuck peering on his on his neighbors through um, a camera lens and then he thinks he witnesses a murder I like the way that in the present day it's firstly it's a woman and she's uh, incapacitated by the mind like we're all sort of trapped in our headspace now mm. um, and her the thing that she is relying on is her um, the only sense you can rely on now is the audible one like mm-hmm. the ears um, so she's had her sort of her sight is being removed whereas that's what Jimmy was sort of what can our, What can we believe? Do we believe what we see? Is what the question was back in the fifties when that film was made, yeah. and now it's it's much more um, I don't know uh, insidious or something. It's like what, what can you believe anything because it's all mediated by technology. Given you know? that
1: an enormous amount of this film is just Zoe Kravitz alone in a room, she's fantastic in this and gives the role so much character. Considering she's a sassy agoraphobic, which probably would be enough for a lot of films. I think, you know, but she's such a great performer. She just imbues it with so much. And she looks great. I think the hair the, um, is amazing.
4: Yeah. I think the soundscape of this is pretty incredible. Yes. Um, and I think that's the strongest part because, I mean, she is agoraphobic and, like, her private space is so important. Um, and it's through the sound that her private space is constantly, um, I guess, broken into in a way. Um, so much of the film is about Privacy. I mean, she's often like hacking into people's personal um like audio records. And her own privacy is also broken into through sound. So we have the upstairs neighbor trying to lay down some carpet. We have sort of a lot of people on the street creating noise. Her Kimmy device is constantly buzzing. Um, and she gets all these calls in from her counsellor and her mum. And um and I think that's quite fascinating how. The soundscape really tells this story mm. and I think develops these themes.
1: And a great score, too. Yes. Cliff yeah. Martinez. It's just so simple yeah. and eerie. A Hitchcock again, you know. It sounds a little mm. Bernard Herrmann at times.
0: It does yeah. actually. It has a very. The film has a very classical quality to it, doesn't it? It feels like it could have come out of the seventies. Even mm. the font that's used, like there's. I feel like he's also referencing that sort of new Hollywood style of filmmaking. Yeah, as it's well. quite a
1: bit of the conversation to it. Uh, you yeah, know? that's uh, yeah. right. Exactly. I thought about that a lot. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I. F- I do feel like this film will uh, be a nice little time capsule for this period. Uh, uh, to you know, in other ways too, like her job is essentially – there was a documentary that we actually reviewed on this show many years ago called The Cleaners, which I think you could probably still – I think you might it's have seen see on ABC or one of those uh, – streaming service. Um, but that was sort of – set was it Southeast Asia? And it's um, about people that are basically cleaning up the worst – Content you could possibly find on the internet, and they're flagging it for for big com- company and big tech like Facebook. Um, and this is essentially her job; she's doing it for the equivalent of Google Home, but it's you know within the context of this film, it's called Kimmy. Um, that in itself is is a really interesting um, place that we find ourselves in as a species. Mm. Um, and I do think that this is another a nice sort of time capsule. And it's and as we said, it's sort of filmed in this very classic classic way that it'll hold up it's like I said it hasn't gone into sci-fi territory so it's not going to date in that way I think
1: yeah I mean it's interesting Um, I was just thinking about the idea of like uh, you know she's I mean she's got this home device on at all times but she's aware that everything that you know this everything's being recorded and that she can just easily you know make a couple of quick calls and download somebody's uh, you know home data remotely Um, but she uses one she has no problem with that um, and her apartment, which is beautiful, unfeasibly beautiful. It's um, you know, yeah, it's it's a bit, of... it's it's friends level unrealistic. It's really beautiful apartment yeah. for a single so tech worker. So much space. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, but but you know, she's got these huge windows looking out into the street that are more like, uh, it's more like people looking in at her a lot mm. of the time. It, mm. It's um. Just, a life is just completely open.
0: A completely exposed, but it's something that we've all given mm-hmm. over, isn't it? Even without, you know, using face identification on our phones now and knowing that that could be taken and used somewhere else, this sort of mega data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting I, one.
4: I mean, I just, I mean, I, I, I said before that it was um, like uneven and I think undercooked. I just think the central crime and the central thing that she's, the conspiracy she's uncovering, I just, need, there needed to be more to that. I think I like think it, it just
1: abs- the the it, conspiracy side of it did get absurd. I think,
4: yeah, I mean, it just, it wraps up way too quickly and I don't, there needed to be like one more scene with a confrontation or there just needed to be just something else to, uh, I guess, deliver the weight of what she's investigating, I think. And that, that's probably the only thing that I thought let the film down because it's so good in other aspects. The fact that it's during COVID but not about COVID, mm. I think, is fascinating. But yeah, just that central narrative, I thought, needed a bit more oomph to it.
1: I would say it is interesting that um, tonally it's quite, you know, it's got a bit of levity to it. It's quite, you know, it's it's tense, but it's quite light and funny at times. Um, and maybe the the beautiful apartment and the you know her incredible sort of stylized look is. Is maybe betrays it a little bit uh, the seriousness of the subject matter, and maybe if it took place in a a, a one bedroom you know apartment with um, plasterboard walls um, that she's not allowed to put pictures up in because she's a renter, um, <laughs> and, um, and her internet was constantly failing, yeah. then it would feel a lot more claustrophobic. And I don't know what am I suggesting? He uh, uh, no, I makes changes to this. <laughs>
0: It's it. it's not no, my place. I, the the uh, no the claustrophobia really worked for me. <clears throat> what I still am sort of not sure about is there is a optimistic uh sort of ending i'll say that much, and I don't know that that i mean in one way i'm like yeah okay that's uh, I, I kind of wanted it because I wanted the relief, but um it just didn't seem true to the to the majority of the film, but um yeah again, who am I to say? <laughs> It should end. Just some... Just this show, some. let's cancel
1: this <laughs> show. Who are, <laughs> who are we to say
0: make
2: them,
1: any of this? Who are
0: we to pass judgment? <laughs> um, look, we've been discussing Stephen Soderbergh's latest film, Kimmy, which is currently streaming here in Australia via Foxtel or Binge. Before that, we spoke about Bergman Island, um, which is where, is... where can people see that? Oh, it's on limited release. You can catch that out, out and about. And uh, at the start of the show, we spoke to Danny Cohen about his documentary, Anonymous Club, Um, jump online to see where you can uh, find that one. It comes out on Thursday, I believe. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.